Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. It's a problem that's been coming for quite some time, and one that really comes as no surprise. The large landscape national parks that are home to many species of wildlife have been turning into biological islands as development hems them in. You can look back to 1993 when the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative launched to begin to see the discussion around opening up these parks through migratory corridors. That initiative, which continues today, envisioned a corridor stretching from Yellowstone National Park to Canada's Yukon Territory to serve wildlife by protecting core wildlife habitat. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. There have been other somewhat similar initiatives. There's the Wildlands Network, which since 1991 has been, as that organization puts it, striving to reconnect, restore, and rewild North America. There have been efforts in Congress to pass legislation that would provide funding for such corridors. The Pew Charitable Trust this past October released a report on the need for creating migratory corridors and the challenges standing in their way. Today, we're going to zoom in on some national parks, their wildlife, and the need to establish habitat connectivity between those parks to prevent animals from being stranded on biological islands. Joining us is Dr. William Newmark, a research curator and conservation biologist in the Natural History Museum of Utah. We'll be back in a minute with Dr. Newmark. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Welcome to The Traveler, Dr. Newmark. Thank you. Hey, before we get into our into your recent report on improving connectivity between Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks and Mount Rainier and North Cascades National Parks, we should probably let listeners know that you're not new to the study of wildlife corridors. 
your research for the past 35 years or so has focused in part on protected area and wildlife corridor design and animal movement, and that's pretty much taken you around the world, hasn't it? Yes, I am working in Tanzania in addition to Western North America, but working in Tanzania for also about the last 35, 36 years. One of the, my primary interests, obviously, is uh, looking at the value of connectivity or corridors on species persistence. Any particular reason, Tanzania? Well, first, it has probably the most spectacular large mammal assemblages of any country in the world. That's what initially attracted me to Tanzania. But they also have regions of high diversity of endemic species, species that are only found in very restricted geographic locations. So I initiated a project 36 years ago looking at the effects of forest fragmentation on bird communities in these forest fragments in, in two mountain ranges in Northeast Tanzania. And then I've also continued with my work looking at the effects of isolation of protected areas on large mammal assemblages in Tanzania. Yeah, I'm curious, maybe we should uh, preface that question with, uh, you know, what led you into this specific field of study? Well, um, I started graduate school in the late 1970s. And at that point, there was a raging debate going on about the applicability of island biogeography theory to protected area design. And so I decided actually to test some of the predictions that island biogeography theory made about species richness and extinction in habitat fragments and to see if they would apply to national parks. So for my doctoral dissertation, I looked at the extinction of large mammal species in Western North American parks and focused on 14 of the largest and oldest parks in Western North America. And what I found was that, yes, uh, island biogeography theory seems to explain patterns of extinction of large mammals in Western North American parks since their establishment. Yeah, I remember coming across that study of yours, and, and some of the numbers were quite, quite alarming. I mean, at, at Lassen Volcanic National Park in California, I believe you found that uh, it had lost 43% of its once native species, um, mammal species, I believe. Zion National Park and Bryce Canyon National Park in Utah had each lost 36%. Mount Rainier had lost 32%. Yosemite had lost 25%, and you know I could go on, but those are pretty, uh, on their face, alarming figures. Yes, they are. Um, I think we, we would like to believe that once a national park or protected area is established, that we have adequately conserved the species that they contain. But what island biogeography theory highlighted is that most species that go extinct their extinctions do not occur immediately. Rather, they're delayed. And it's this delayed loss of species that actually offers 
offers us an opportunity to conserve species if we connect protected areas with corridors. And the reason is, is because corridors effectively enlarge a protected area. Not only do they permit species to move be between various protected areas, but they provide more habitat. And, and by providing more habitat, you have effectively enlarged population sizes, and thus you reduce the rate at which species uh, disappear from habitat fragments or parks over time. Now, I'm curious, um, that 95 study, have you been able to, to go back and revisit those parks and see if those percentages have increased in terms of lost species? Uh, no, I haven't gone back and repeated that. But what I do know is that since park establishment, some of the species that were not found, that disappeared after park establishment have been reintroduced by managers and some species have naturally recolonized, showing once again, the value of connectivity in terms of enhancing species persistence. And I repeated this analysis in the mid nineties with a series of parks in Tanzania. And once again, found exactly the same pattern, that the loss of species within a park is related to the size of the park. Smaller parks have lost not only a higher number of species, larger number of species, but also the rate at which they disappeared in the park over time is higher than in the larger parks. You know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I mentioned Yellowstone to Yukon in the, the introduction to today's show. And, you know, that initiative has, has been around since 1993, roughly. Any idea how successful or unsuccessful it's been in, in providing migratory corridors between those areas? Well, last summer, I, I was in a symposium that looked at connectivity. And one of the there were a number of individuals that have been working on that Yellowstone to Yukon project. And what was incredibly encouraging about their presentation is actually how successful they have been in terms of working out cooperative arrangements, largely with tribal authorities in Canada to protect these critical migratory routes or movement pathways between protected areas in the northern U.S. up through uh, the Yukon in Canada. So yes, it's actually one of the more successful stories of large-scale connectivity actually in the world. Are we actually seeing um, species migrating the, the whole stretch or is it you know smaller stretches in between? Yeah. Um, the distances are far enough apart that species, most species will not move in over a short time period, but will leapfrog over a longer time period. However, there are exceptions. Uh, for instance, you know, gray wolves have recolonized many areas in the Western US and they can cover large distances in a short period of time. Similarly, uh, Wolverine have been recited over the last few years in Utah, and these really? are animals that almost certainly uh, disperse from Yellowstone. 
these are examples of species that can cover large distances in a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. Where in Utah are wolverines showing up? They've been sighted in uh, the Uintas. That's probably the best sighting. There are a few other sightings that may or may not be result of natural dispersal. But nonetheless, the ones in in the Uintas are clearly examples of animals that have naturally dispersed out of most likely Yellowstone. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. A, a long distance, and I know there's been a lot of concern in recent years over climate change and how that's impacting wolverine uh, habitat, particularly, I guess, um, denning sites and whatnot. Now, um, that brings us to your latest paper, Enhanced Regional Connectivity Between Western North American National Parks and How That Will Increase Persistence of Mammal Species Diversity. Why did you look at those those four parks, Yellowstone and Glacier and Mount Rainier and North Cascades? Well, the reason we focus on those parks is for several reasons. First, there's been a lot of previous modeling of movement pathways of mammals between Yellowstone and Glacier and between Mount Rainier and North Cascades. So there were, was an existing, we knew where the least cost movement pathways were in those two networks. Also, there's been a, uh, quite a number of telemetric studies of ungulate species in the Yellowstone ecosystem. So we knew where those important migratory routes were and if they intersected or bisected these other known migratory pathways. So that's, and then lastly, it actually is very feasible to establish a protected area network in, in these two regions because virtually all of the land that's been identified either as a linkage between Yellowstone and Glacier or between Mount Rainier and North Cascades is public lands. So it's practically very feasible. And then lastly, our knowledge about the species that were found there at time of park establishment is much better than in other areas in Western North America. So we needed that information for our modeling work. So that's why we focus on those two areas. First, it was it seemed to be quite feasible to establish linkages in these two areas. And secondly, there have been a considerable amount of previous modeling of movement pathways of, of mammal species in these two hypothetical networks. We'll take a look at those possible corridors in a moment. This is Kurt Rabincheck. We're talking today with Dr. William Newmark, a research curator and conservation biologist at the Natural History Museum of Utah about uh, migratory corridors between national parks, Yellowstone and Glacier, and Mount Rainier and North Cascades National Park. We'll be back in a minute after a short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Interior Federal Credit Union offers a large suite of savings products, including secondary savings accounts for budgeting, individual retirement accounts, health savings accounts, 
education savings accounts, money marketing accounts, and certificates. Start the new year off with an account at Interior Federal Credit Union and get ready for all the adventures 2023 has to offer. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on the homepage. Federally insured by NCUA. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Okay, we're back with Dr. William Newmark. Doctor, I'm wondering, the migratory corridors you're looking at are, are, are for larger mammalian species. I'm, I'm guessing ungulates and wolves and bears and whatnot. Is there a, a cascade down the, the food chain, so to speak, on, on the health of those species populations and, and lower species? Yeah, so one of the reasons why we focused our latest analysis on the value of enhanced connectivity on medium to large mammal species is that by protecting these species that have large area requirements, you increase the likelihood of also protecting species that have smaller area requirements. In other words, these are sometimes referred to as umbrella species. That if you can protect these, you have a much higher likelihood of also being able to protect many other species that once again, have smaller area requirements. Now, in, in terms of connectivity, um, there's been a proposal lately you probably heard of um, to create the range of light national monument that would uh, basically take much of the Sierra National Forest that stretches between Yosemite National Park and Kings Canyon National Park in California and bring it into the national park system. Is such a move needed to benefit wildlife, or would it simply be redundant in light of the existence of the national forest? Well, enhancing kind of the protected area status, I think, is very important. Obviously, there are a whole variety of activities that are allowed in national forests, but not but are not permitted in national parks. Now, if these areas were to be designated as wilderness areas, that would provide a protection equivalent to the protection within uh, most uh, national parks, the exception being obviously grazing. Mm -hmm. if you graze in a wilderness area, you can't graze in a national park. But uh, road building is not permitted either in a wilderness area or in most national parks. 
But yes, I think uh, enhancing the protected area status would provide additional protection for many wild, wildlife species that occur outside of the parks. Now, in terms of uh, biological islands and bridging them, um, I'm guessing that climate change is also another reason why we should move move in these directions to to open up uh, migratory corridors, right? Yes. Um, one of the things that ecologists have long recognized is that with climate change, species are and will be forced to change or shift their geographic ranges over time. And in the case of these hypothetical networks between Yellowstone and Glacier and between Mount Rainier and North Cascades, the linkages actually are located along a north-south gradient. They follow existing mountain ranges. And these are exactly the predicted movement pathways that species would have to follow over time in response to climate change. In other words, animals are being forced uh, pull in a more poleward direction, and animals are also being forced upslope in response to warming temperatures. So these identified linkages would allow species to more readily shift their geographic ranges in response to climate change. Now, you had mentioned that um, a lot of the, the lands along these um, possible corridors between Yellowstone and Glacier and Mount Rainier and North Cascades are, are in the public domain, so to speak, you know, federal landscapes and whatnot. Um, in the case of Yellowstone and Glacier, I believe you and your colleagues uh, have identified four important wildlife linkages. And in the case of Mount Rainier and North Cascades, um, you pointed to one key linkage. And I'm just wondering, you know, even though a lot of that is public land, how can those linkages be established and protected in today's land ownership patterns and the, the road and highway networks? I mean, building an overpass or an underpass is, is not a cheap endeavor. I think if you look at uh, Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area and the uh, the recent um, groundbreaking for a, a wildlife overpass over the 101 freeway, which I think is... 10 lanes, which is probably much bigger than you'd encounter going between Yellowstone and Glacier or Mount Rainier and North Cascades. I mean, I think the price tag for that was almost $100 million. Yes, well, that probably represents the highest potential cost for establishing. And as you just mentioned, there aren't any uh, 10 lane interstates that bisect either of those two hypothetical uh, networks. There's been quite a bit of research over the last two decades looking at the effectiveness of these under and over passes. And obviously for many large mammal species, the overpasses would appear to be more effective, but not in all cases, than underpasses. And what they've also identified that in some for certain species, the underpasses are actually too large. They're actually, they're less likely, you know, particularly some of these smaller mammal species are less likely to enter a large tunnel than a smaller tunnel. So it doesn't mean that to establish additional under and overpasses would be 
incredibly expensive, particularly in relationship to the cost of to constructing and and maintaining these existing highways. And there's been quite a bit of work you know, here in Utah constructing under and overpasses for wildlife. I think what our research shows is that given the importance of providing under and overpasses for an entire mammal community that you will need to construct a variety of under and overpasses to permit all these species to shift their ranges and, and to disperse and move over time between these parks. But this is probably the most important thing that we can do to enhance the capacity of these hypothetical linkages to allow species to disperse and move over time between these protected areas. Yeah. Is there any research that, that points to um, whether an underpass is better than an overpass or vice versa? I know here in Utah, um, the, the state highway department put a wildlife overpass over um, Interstate 80, um, actually not far from where I live. And um, the, the videos they, they've captured of, of animals flocking, so to speak, across that overpass have, have gone viral across the country. Um, is an overpass better than an underpass, or does it depend on the, the existing landscape that you're trying to uh, provide that corridor for? Well, I think it depends in part on the species. So many of the smaller mammal species appear to use or likely use underpasses, while the larger mammal species tend to use the overpasses. But that, once again, um, there are also videos of deer using underpasses. Wow, that's interesting. I know in Florida, they've got uh, underpasses for mountain lions, um, which, uh, yeah, not, not tied into mountain lion behavior. I don't know if they feel more comfortable going through a tunnel or, or over an overpass or not. Now, I'm wondering, um, what about societal pressures? I know in, in Washington State, when you talk about uh, grizzly bear re recovery in the North Cascades complex, there's uh, some uh, communities don't want to see it, and they push back hard. In fact, that's what uh, killed the, the Park Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service looking into that possibility during the Trump administration. Um, here in Utah, there are concerns when a mountain lion is spotted on a uh, a neighborhood street, and of course, up in Jackson, Wyoming, you've got uh, bears and bird feeders are not a, a healthy mix, and there's a lot of concerns over that. Do you think there'd be uh, societal impediments to to such a an effort? Well, I think it would be unrealistic to expect there would be a hundred percent support for such an initiative. On the other hand, national parks are probably our most popular public institution and body that's and our park system became a model that was adopted worldwide and people suggested two of the greatest things that the united states has provided to the world community was our constitution and secondly the establishment of our national park system so uh, given its popularity, given 
the increasing number of people that are visiting our parks, particularly to have an opportunity to see this incredible diversity of plants and animals that occur in Western North America. Um, I think nonetheless, establishing corridors, um, I think would have broad bipartisan support. In fact, uh, these previous bills have been passed by Congress uh, to construct under and overpasses to permit species to shift their geographic ranges and to migrate um, as broad bipartisan support. Nonetheless, you know, I'm sure there will be uh, certain groups uh, that would be opposed to it. Yeah. And of course, the science points to the success of these endeavors. I mean, uh, your own work has shown that in Banff National Park in Canada, that the wildlife crossings over the Trans-Canadian Highway have improved genetic connectivity for, for black and grizzly bears. Yes. I mean, this is some of the most encouraging research that has come out highlighting that indeed it's highly feasible to enhance ecological connectivity by constructing under and overpasses. And you know, many in the West, you know, the support for wildlife is extremely broad-based. And once again, uh, protecting known migratory routes of ungulates has broad bipartisan support. So this is not a a radical idea. This is something that I think uh, virtually all wildlife professionals and a large proportion of the public do support. Do you think we're going through a, a renaissance of um, connection with nature and, and realization that we need to protect these, these species, whether it's a, a plant or an animal? I mean, up in northern Montana, you've got the American... Um, Prairie Reserve and, and what they're trying to do in terms of uh, saving the uh, the shortgrass prairie and uh, bison and, and all the um, corresponding flora and fauna that that existed uh, 150 years ago. Um, you've got efforts in in the southeast, you know, going up through um, Great Smoky Mountains National Park and into the Blue Ridge Parkway to try and provide for habitat. Um, it, it's not niche groups that are pushing these ideas. It, it seems like there's a, a groundswell of support now. Yes, I, I think um, there is incredible broad-based support to conserve our natural heritage. And one of the things that we saw during the COVID lockdown is that people really started recreating outdoors and connecting with nature. And this continues since the COVID lockdown. So once again, what we need is actually um, to enlarge our protected area system. And I, once again, I think this has broad public support now. Now, I know your recent study and most of your research in, in North America um, has focused on the Western half of the United States. Any idea casting your eyes to the east how far similar corridors might be feasible? Well, there's been a effort over quite a few decades to establish a 
large corridor um, in Florida that would link Southern corridor, Florida with Northern Florida. And right. uh, that has, if I'm not mistaken, received uh, public funding and support. And under an overpass, are being constructed there. There have been other uh, mapping exercises in the Northeast, particularly New England, looking at linkages between protected areas and ecoregions. So there are groups that are working also in Eastern North America, I think, to establish linkages on the scale that we would envision in Western North America may not be is feasible, but nonetheless, what we believe that our current study shows is that it provides a powerful tool for evaluating and assessing various linkage plans and schemes to look at what will be the impact of enhancing connectivity on, on mammal persistence time. Yeah. Now I'm curious. Uh, one of the largest potential corridors, possibly in the in the east, is the Appalachian Trail. I mean, you've got more than two thousand miles of of connectivity right there, but in some places, it's rather narrow in width. In in looking at Yellowstone to Glacier and Mount Rainier to North Cascades, I mean, we're talking um, corridors that you know could be hundreds of miles long. How wide are we talking to to be suitable? The wider, generally the better. Okay, we'll put it that way. In our mapping work of these hypothetical linkages between Yellowstone and Glacier and between Mount Rainier and North Cascades, the linkages or corridors were between five and 45 kilometers in width. So that's between approximately three miles and 25 miles in width. Yeah, that's pretty healthy. Once again, that's because they followed existing public land boundaries. Now, we know less about the minimum corridor width, but there's some suggestion that it may be around five kilometers in width for large mammals. And any idea? I mean, you're talking um, public lands, and so you've got different land management agencies is that another hurdle in terms of getting them all on board? Because obviously the, the BLM has a different mandate than the Forest Service uh, versus the, the National Park Service. Yes. I mean, each land managing agency has its own mandate. But in the last Congress, they passed a wildlife corridors bill that recognized the importance of establishing corridors in Western North America. So if there's an agreement that these linkages are important, then obviously a much higher priority on some of these public lands that are, that are not currently either wilderness area or national park would be to manage them in a fashion that will permit species to easily disperse and move along these previously identified uh, movement pathways. Well, Dr. Newmark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an interesting study and, and obviously an interesting time in terms of uh, ecosystem restoration and uh, seeing how much uh, momentum we can get behind these projects. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. 
That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to be getting out on the open road, so to speak. We're going to be talking to David and Kay Scott, uh, who normally write about lodgings in national parks. They've come out with a new book, Exploring the Oregon Trail, America's Historic Road Trip. It took them several trips along the more than 2,000-mile-long trail to get all the details they wanted to put into this book. It touches on all the highlights you'll see along the way and some great museums. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. We'll see you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Park's Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.